human beings are complex, aren't they? I mean, one moment you're capable of spectacular displays of virtue, and then the next, great evil. And I think that's why Breaking Bad has risen to prominence since it was released in 2008. We got any Breaking Bad people in here? Some of you are afraid to admit it. I know there's more of you than that. Uh, the main character, Walter White, he's full of contradiction. His, his character really is layer after layer after layer after layer of complexity. See, on one hand, he desired to care for his loved ones, and he cares for them so much and wants to provide for his family so badly that he starts selling meth. That sounds crazy to you that's not seen the show, but it's not so crazy once you start watching it. You also see him where he's willing to do the worst of the job so that others don't have to. It's a really backwards way of showing it, but he actually cares for those that are closest to him. And the longer you watch it, the more undeniably brilliant that he becomes. He's this chemistry teacher who's able to prove his unparalleled genius when he makes meth. So that's him on one hand. Here's who he is on the other, is that he's obsessed with power. I mean, at the start of the story, he lacks self-confidence. He's just this flailing high school chemistry teacher. But once he starts selling meth, he develops this strong sense of entitlement and superiority. You also see that he's got this lack of compassion for those who are outside his inner circle. He often uses others as nothing more than tools to get what he wants. And when he doesn't get what he wants from someone and believes that their suffering will benefit him, he's glad to do it. And you see that he's vain. I mean, he's this incredible meth cook. He's this gene, chemistry genius. He's great at solving problems, but he overly savors his reputation as a wizard and as a drug kingpin. And it's my belief that the reason we're so drawn to this story is because we can relate. I mean, deep down, we have this inner Walter White, if you will. And we don't know what box we fit in. Are we the hero or are we the villain? We know we don't fit into each. We know we're a mixture of both because we're complex. And believe it or not, the Bible portrays human beings as the same thing. Its characters are really hard to pin down as good guys or bad guys. When you look at Lot, Abraham's nephew today, you see the same complexity. You're going to applaud him at one moment in this story, and you're going to want to curse him the next. And it's because he's a complex figure. So let's read Genesis 1 to 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. And that word for know has sexual connotations. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. 
Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Both the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it, it meaning Sodom. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out of the, brought and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Verse 21. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. I mean, it's a pretty strange story, right? I mean, you've got this angry, sexually charged mob on one hand. You've got angels, too. And then you've got a woman who's turned into a statue of salt. Strange. But the center of this whole story is its main figure, this complex figure. It's Lot. If you've been with us the last several weeks, uh, we've kind of hinted at lots at certain points because, he, because we're preaching through Genesis and he's come up at a couple different junctures. And the most important thing to know about Lot is that he's Abraham's nephew. He came with Abraham and Sarah after God put a call on Abraham's life to leave all 
Later in the story, when he and Abraham are business partners, more or less, Abraham gives him the more fertile piece of real estate in Sodom. Then he's rescued by Abraham when Sodom is captured by the kings from the east. Then in chapter 18, God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom because of its wickedness. But Abraham, because of his commitment to Lot, pleads for God to show Sodom some mercy. And as you look at the story of Lot, he's progressively and slowly assimilating into the culture of Sodom. You see it in 1312. 1312, Lot is said to have moved his tent as far as Sodom. In 1412, it says that Lot has made his dwelling in Sodom. And now in 1901, you have Sodom, or you have Lot who's sitting in the gate of Sodom. And this word sitting in the gate, this isn't like he's just posting up on the front porch of the city. Sitting in the gate is a key detail because the gate is where all legal and civic and business dealings took place. It's where the who's who of Sodom would have spent their days. And so Lot's a leader. Lot's climbed the ladder over the years. He's figured out how to be a good citizen here in Sodom. So one point for Lot. Then you see at the beginning of the story, Lot's hospitable. These two strangers, these two angels come to the city and Lot offers them lodging in his house. One point for Lot. If you read the rest of the biblical narrative, you'll find out in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, 7, Peter's looking back at Lot and here's what he says about Lot. He said that Lot is distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked in Sodom. So it seems like Lot has some semblance of a moral compass. Another point for Lot. See, Lot has been cut from a different cloth than the rest of his neighbors, but for all his good qualities, they're offset by his foolishness. I mean, did you see what happens when the mob, the angry mob comes and they want to have sexual relations with the two visitors? Do you see what happened? What does Lot do? Lot offers his daughters up for them to gang rape. So, dads, if you think you're a bad dad, no fear. You're not at the bottom of the barrel. Lot's taking the trophy here. So you got one point against Lot. Now you look at his hosting skills. Sure, he's willing to host and have them in his house, but he doesn't do a great job hosting them. All he offers them is unleavened bread. Well, these same visitors had come to Abraham in chapter 18, and Abraham gives them a a, a more than adequate meal. He gives them high-end drink, and he gives them meat. Whereas Lot gives them equivalent of going to Olive Garden just getting the breadsticks. Far from adequate. So one point against Lot. Then you've got Lot. You've got the visitors. They're inside the house. And outside the house is this angry mob who wants to get their hands on the visitors. And, and the visitors, what they end up doing is and they end up rescuing Lot. Not Lot rescuing them. And they help Lot flee the city. But In verse 18, you see that Lot wants to stay. He's being uncooperative with angels. One point against Lot. Then you got his family. I mean, you see all these family members in the story. You got the sons-in-law, and then you, you, you get mention of his daughters. But if I were to keep reading the rest of the chapter, here's what you would have found out about his daughters in verses 30 to 38 is that they, get their, they, they leave with their dad. Their mom's now a pillar of salt. And they leave with their dad to this little town of Zoar. And they get him really drunk. And they sleep with him. And then, he had, then they have children by him. 
And then you've got his, his wife who turns around, and what we find out in Luke chapter 17 is why she turned around. It says she turned around because of her love for her household goods. So then you've got his sons-in-law. The sons-in-law, they laugh at Lot when he tells them to flee the city, and they should have laughed at him because he was unwilling to leave the city. He was telling them to do something he wasn't willing to do. So all across Lot's family is ungodliness, which just points and is indicative to how shallow Lot's faith is. Another point against Lot. So how could it be like this? I mean, on the one hand, he's virtuous. On the other hand, he has all these vices. There's this incongruity about Lot. He's this conflicted soul, this compromised soul. But what you see is that he's offended by the Sodomites from 1 Peter 2, but he's a lord, and I think he's more a lord than he is offended. He likes the prosperity and the comforts of the Sodomite culture. He's gotten used to the wickedness of Sodom, and boy, was Sodom wicked. We have all these passages in the Old Testament. You have Leviticus 18 and 20, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 16, that all list out how Sodom is wicked. And its wickedness is the kind that's oppressive, and it's adulterous, it's lying, it's arrogance, it's complacency, it shows no pity on the needy. Those are some of the things that are listed. And this is the air that Lot breathes, and over time what happens a lot is he becomes a card-carrying sodomite. He's this, he's way too attached to it. He's engrossed in it, and he's preoccupied with all the things of sodomite culture. He is what the New Testament calls worldly, which is just another way of saying that he just goes along with the flow of the wicked ways of Sodom. He's become too at home with the ways of Sodom, and he's unwilling to see himself as a pilgrim. A pilgrim. A, a pilgrim is a person who knows their home is with God, and even the best the world has to offer isn't what we're in the end made for. We find out in the New Testament that Abraham, he views himself as a pilgrim, but Lot doesn't. Do you? Do you view yourself as a pilgrim? I mean, I don't mean the kind that we celebrate at Thanksgiving, but the kind that knows that they're just passing through. I mean, I ask you that question as someone who loves Lexington and loves Kentucky, and I get all warm inside when I hear the quote, heaven must be a Kentucky kind of place. But this world should feel uncomfortable to you and I. I think there's a couple ways it tends to feel really comfortable for us, and we don't even know it. And one of them is when it comes to our material possessions. And I think when we think about our material possessions, how do we come up with our standard of living is a, is a good way to think about it. And usually when we set our standard of living, we look at our parents and we, we, we want it to be at our parents' level or maybe even a little bit better. If our parents lived at such and such standards, we unconsciously expect to do as good or better than they did. If they were able to pay for their kids' college, we expect to do the same or better. If they went on certain kinds of vacations, we expect to go on certain kinds of vacations. If they were able to make investments on the side with their income, we expect to make investments on the side with our income. If they retired in their 50s and 60s, we expect to retire in our 50s and 60s. And it goes on and on and on and on. And none of these things are inherently bad. But I think oftentimes we just go along with the materialism of our culture without second-guessing it. 
And without knowing it, what we've bought into is what's referred to as the American dream. See, Jesus might be in your heart, but Sodom or America is in your bones. I think another place we do it is where we see ourselves on the political spectrum. How we think about politics. If you lean right, you think you have to swallow everything that the right's agenda. If you lean left, you have to swallow everything that's on the left's agenda. You're afraid of critiquing your own side and you're very quick to critique the other side. And I think the reason we're uncritical about all of these things is because we never want the reputation of being the opposite side. If you view yourself as a conservative, the last thing you want to be called is a liberal. If you call yourself a liberal, the last thing you want to be called is a conservative. But what we should do is that we should shudder at the thought of swallowing one side or the other whole. We shouldn't fear the label. We shouldn't fear, what we should fear is being more committed to our political party than we are to Jesus. And you want some motivation. You want some motivation to shun the American dream. You want some motivation to cast aside a political label. Just look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what God does. He destroys them. He destroys them. And so the text says that he rains down fire and sulfur. But what likely took place is that it was an earthquake. It was an earthquake and it released gases and sulfur and bitumen and these substances, when they're lit, they cause a fiery explosion. Maybe a, a lightning burst came down and, and hit these gases and lit everything on fire. Maybe it was an inadvertent lighting by humans. We don't know, but regardless, it left this city in a pile of ashes. And it's God's judgment. It's God's wrath. And the wrath of God's hard for us to talk about, isn't it? I mean, many of us say, I, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I only believe in a God of mercy. But zoom out a little bit and his wrath is different than what you might expect. I mean, what you see in the, the chapter before, chapter 18, verses 20 and 21 is, and then in our text, verse 13, is that God only brings judgment after he's done a very careful investigation of what's going on. What you see in verse 4 and verse 24 is that God's vengeance is dispensed as punishment for oppression. Then in verses 7 and 8 in our text, you see that God gives sinners a chance to repent. So it's clear that his wrath is, it's not the result of him being touchy or thin-skinned or irritable. But maybe when you, you, you view the world and you think about it, you, you think that violence is perfectly natural. You know, like when a big fish eats a little fish. But how do you think about people? I mean, do you believe that stronger nations, cultures, and persons have the right to oppress weaker nations, cultures, and persons? I mean, and if there's no God, if there's no supernatural reality outside of nature who says that oppression and bigotry and slavery and violence are wrong, then on what intellectual basis do you have for rejecting these types of things? See, at that point, it really just becomes your opinion versus mine. Or, or, or take God's wrath on a different level. That's the intellectual level. Take it on a personal level. Or psychological level. I mean, if I don't believe there's a God who knows what others deserve better than I do, then I'm going to be unable to avoid the trap of bitterness or revenge. See, if I'm the victim of oppression, you, you, you're, then I'm going to experience enormous 
internal pressure to revenge or even to be bitter unless I know that there's a true judge, a true judge who knows better than I do. See, what we need, we need the hope that God is judge. And you might say that you don't like that and it's fine, but a God who will never come down in judgment is really not a God who is merciful. See, I mean, look in our text. Sure, God, God puts this city into a, a pile of ash, but you see his grace too. See, God's hard to put in a box too. Walter White's hard to put in a box. Lot's hard to put in a box. You're hard to put in a box, but not as hard as God. I mean, sure, he's got that judgment, but look at all his displays of grace in this text. Look at verse 11. The angels, they blind the crowd. And why do they blind this angry mob? They blind them so that they can get Lot and his family out of town. Not only that, they drag him out. Verse 16, do you see what it says? It says that God's merciful by allowing Lot and his family to escape. In verse 21, they tell Lot, the, the, the angels tell Lot to, to go into the, to the hills. And he doesn't want to go into the hills. He wants to go in this small town of Zoar and God allows him to. That's his mercy. That's his grace. And it's shocking that God would be so kind to Lot, isn't it? I mean, this is the same guy who offered his daughters up for the crowd's sexual pleasure. But God shows him mercy. But there's more. Look, look at the, other, the, the main reason he shows him mercy. Look at verse 29, the last verse we read. Can you find it? Can you find the reason God shows mercy to Lot? It's Abraham. God remembers Abraham. Abraham's prayers, specifically, I mean, when Abraham was chosen in Genesis chapter 12, it was, to, it was to be God's conduit of blessing. And that blessing wasn't just for Abraham, but it was also for his descendants. And Lot, in many ways, is one of his descendants. Sure, it's not his son, but it's his nephew. Abraham sure treats him like a son his whole life. Abraham prays for him in chapter 18. And after you read this narrative, you see that Lot doesn't deserve to be spared. The only way he's going to be spared is grace. And that grace came through the prayers of someone else on his behalf. Sound familiar? I mean, you and I are a lot like Lot too. Yeah, we're complex. We got a thing or two going for us, but we've fallen face first into a pit of worldliness. Well, what are we going to do about it? I mean, are you going to try to pull yourself out? If you try to pull yourself out of it by yourself, it's like standing in the pit and pulling on your hair thinking you're going to hoist yourself out of the pit. It's not going to work. You need someone outside the pit to get you out. And just as God pulled Lot out of the pit of Sodom, God will pull you out of the pit of worldliness. And it will all be because of his son. It will all be because of Jesus' prayers on your behalf. I mean, listen to these New Testament verses. I mean, these are verses worth meditating on. If you're like, man, what scripture should I read this week? I mean, you can go back and read Genesis 19, but I would read Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. See, did you know Jesus prays for you when you don't ask him to? I mean, Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, when Jen and I, when we uh, started dating, we were seniors in college, and I remember always thinking, I think about her constantly. I mean, I still do. We've been married almost 19 years. I think about her constantly. I'm at work. I'm at wondering how she's doing. And do you ever wonder if anybody's thinking about you? Jesus is always thinking about you. He's always interceding for you. See, Lot didn't ask Abraham to pray for him, and you don't have to ask Jesus to pray for you either. He does anyways, and he does because he loves you. I know it's hard to believe. You know you're in the pit. You know it's your fault. But when you see that he does it because he loves you anyways, in spite of all of who you are, when that really hits home, then you'll see that all the world has to offer, the power, the control, the comfort, the approval, all of these things, they won't mean anything to you. You'll be free. You'll be as free as Jesus. And in many ways, Jesus is the anti-Lot. I mean, he's a little bit like Lot because they both live in a world that's, that's very wicked. Both of them are constantly associating with wicked and impure people. But Jesus, he was never contaminated by the impurity of his culture. It was quite the opposite. It was his purity that rubbed off on those around him. So in many ways, the holiness of Jesus was more contagious than the world's corruption to him. And so if you're really worried about worldliness, if you're like, man, I have fallen face first, that whole political spectrum, you got me, preacher. That whole materialism thing, you got me. Whatever it is, I don't know what it could be, that how worldliness has got you. But it's more than him just wanting to pull you out so that you can't be worldly. He also wants you to have great influence. Yes, it's about the unhealthy things that you're influenced by. But he also wants you to be a positive influence in your world the way that he was. See, you too can live in this world, a world that's a lot like Sodom, and you can have more influence than you ever dare dream. Now, you've got to rely on the Spirit's power. You've got to shun worldliness. But brother and sister, you can be a vessel of God's grace in this wicked world. I pray that's true for you. I pray it's true for me. I pray it's true for our church.